Traumatic brain injury can change the essence of who we are and worse go unrecognized and therefore miss interventions to unlock the brain's capacity to repair itself. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. And with me today is Dr. Sandeep Vashnavi, Director of the Neuropsychiatric Clinic at Carolina Partners and a neuropsychiatrist at the Duke University of Medicine. He and his collaborator, Dr. Vani Rao, who is Director of Brain Injury Clinic at the Johns Hopkins Medicine, have recently written a well-received book, The Traumatized Brain, A Family Guide to Understanding Mood, Memory, and Behavior After Brain Injury. Thank you, Dr. Vashnavi, for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. To begin with, how do you define traumatic brain injury, and why do you feel, as you mentioned it in your book, that it's reached epidemic proportion? So a traumatic brain injury is where the brain is impacted by something and where there is dazing and confusion, even if it's momentary. So that's really important to keep in mind because if someone hits their head, let's say, against a door, that by by itself is not necessarily a traumatic brain injury uh, unless they get dazed and confused uh, even momentarily. So that's really important to note. And uh, traumatic brain injury can be divided into mild, moderate, and severe categories. Uh, But overall, traumatic brain injury has reached epidemic proportions now because uh, there are literally millions of people that get a traumatic brain injury a day, uh, at least 2.5 million a year. And there are millions of people who are actually now on uh, disability-related traumatic brain injury. Uh, In particular, with the uh, wars that uh, our soldiers have been in over the past decade or so, We've seen a huge number of uh, veterans who have uh, come back uh, from the wars, soldiers who have come back from the wars with traumatic brain injury. We're also much more aware now of uh, brain injury in the context of sports, concussions that occur, and we've seen that with NFL players. We've seen that even with amateur sports. Uh, And people get traumatic brain injuries all the time with more mundane things, such as car accidents and falls. In fact, those are the two most common causes of traumatic brain injury. There are a large number of uh, people now in this country who are suffering from and have suffered from traumatic brain injury. And one of the purposes of this book was to help people understand that and to help people understand the long-term consequences of brain injury. One of the consequences that certainly I, as a practicing internist, don't really remember seeing, uh, possibly because the patients were referred on to other specialists, but your book really emphasizes that there are emotional and behavior problems that come on after a traumatic brain injury. We've all seen a, a seizure, a coma, uh, the types of things that I might see in the emergency room immediately. But your book really develops this whole concept of psychiatric symptoms that come from a traumatic brain injury. Could you speak to that? Sure. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. The acute issues, of course, are um, very prominent after a traumatic brain injury. If the person's comatose, obviously, that needs to be dealt with. If they're having seizures, that needs to be dealt with. But the thing is that uh, I think we have not really appreciated, as a medical profession perhaps, uh, so much, that after that acute phase, that initial phase, once the patient is out of the hospital, uh, they seem to be doing okay. Uh, nonetheless, a lot of patients, especially with more moderate to severe brain injuries, do have long-term neuropsychiatric consequences, and that's what we focus on in this book, 
uh, as you said, mood problems, behavioral problems, cognitive problems like memory issues. And this is not uncommon at all. And in fact, a lot of patients actually say the same thing, is that they kind of left the, they left the hospital and they and their family members weren't really aware of what the problems could be down the road. And, and that's a, sort of a missing link, I think, uh, in terms of our understanding and our communication with patients. And, um, and in fact, I think a lot of this has to do with specialties and subspecialties and which specialties deal with what part of the traumatic brain injury experience. Uh, so the issue is that neurologists and internists and neurosurgeons may be involved more acutely in the emergency room and during the hospitalization. But oftentimes, the long-term problems are psychiatric problems, as we were, are talking about, and their psychiatry is involved. And it's sometimes patients get dropped in between or get lost in between specialties. And that's another reason that I wanted to really talk about all of that in this book, so that people understand that there are these psychiatric symptoms uh, that can occur after brain injury down the road. You've titled your book For Families. But how do you see your colleagues, my colleagues, and other health providers using this book? Well, I'm hopeful that uh, people will read this book, medical professionals, uh, doctors will read this book, and uh, get a sense from it what exactly their patients are dealing with who have traumatic brain injury, especially the more moderate to severe brain injuries. Because, as I was mentioning, it's it's something that is not that well-known. Um, it's actually a kind of a silent epidemic in terms of the neuropsychiatric consequences of brain injury. Um, now, e- even psychiatrists, I would say, to some degree, are not fully aware of it. Neurologists, maybe not even. And certainly more of the primary care specialties, I don't think, are fully aware of this. It's really the sub-subspecialties, like neuropsychiatry, which is my, my area of, um, of training, in neuropsychiatry, we do focus on exactly this, these long-term symptoms of traumatic brain injury, and which tend to be these mood, behavioral, and cognitive symptoms. So I'm hopeful that uh, that, that kind of information can be conveyed to other medical specialties uh, so that they're on the lookout for these kinds of things. A lot of the times, patients themselves may not be uh, aware of the connection between these symptoms that they're now suffering and the initial brain injury, or their family members may not be aware, or they think that it's not really relevant and they don't even bring it up to their doctors, or they're embarrassed about it, uh, depending on what exactly the symptom is, or they may not have insight. So for all of these reasons, uh, patients may not necessarily bring it up, and they're seeing their internists or they're seeing uh, other specialties uh, just for follow-up, and uh, that's an opportunity for intervention. Uh, for other specialties, and I'm hopeful that uh, they can understand a little bit about that from this book. So you're saying time can elapse between the injury and the appearance of the emotional or behavior problem, and the physician and family can be caught off guard. In other words, not really diagnose this as a, as a sequela, and that really look upon these people as the new normal, in quotation marks. Yeah, absolutely true. So what can happen is that, uh, let's say with a moderate or severe brain injury, uh, the patient was comatose for a while, they developed seizures, uh, they went through rehabilitation initially, and eventually they were discharged from the hospital setting, and they're off on their own in the outpatient world. And so there are a lot of kind of acute issues that go on in that context, but once all of those things are dealt with, um, down the road, they may develop these mood problems, for example, depression is extremely common after traumatic brain injury, major depressive symptoms about 40% of the time. But people can also develop uh, agitation, impulse, 
impulsivity, trouble controlling their impulses, personality changes, disinhibition, um, basically being socially different, in other words, being coarser socially, just being inappropriate in social contexts, uh, and then people can also have memory and attention problems that develop. So it's not like these are symptoms that just come out of the blue necessarily. It's just that that wasn't really the, the initial presentation. And so, of course, everyone is dealing with the initial issues, making sure that they get, through, get out of the hospital. And these long-term consequences kind of build up over time, and uh, they become more prominent later on or become more evident later on. And it turns out that these are the symptoms that are actually then most burdensome to the patient. Um, and so that's why it's so important for us as uh, physicians to be aware of this and to ask about this and to refer or treat as appropriate. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and our guest today is Dr. Sandeep Vashnavi, who has written the recent book, The Traumatized Brain, A Family Guide to Understanding Mood, Memory, and Behavior After Brain Injury. You know, the, the patients are getting so much better care after these gunshot, auto wounds, sport injury types of uh, events. Do you think we're seeing this more because our patients are surviving and we're seeing this as a late sequela? I think that's absolutely right. We do know that in the military context, a lot more soldiers are surviving wounds that they would not have survived otherwise. So we are seeing more uh, long-term consequences, which we wouldn't have never seen before. The other thing is that uh, with the armor, body armor that soldiers have, uh, they're protected in terms of their torso, but oftentimes with an IED, with a blast, uh, the force of the blast is actually projected upwards towards the head. So we're more likely to see these kinds of brain injuries now than, they, than before, and, and people are surviving brain injuries more than before, as, as we were just talking about. So we're seeing more of these long-term consequences because of that. The brain, in your book, you describe it, how unique it is in its plasticity. And therefore, how can this be used in the preparative or rehabilitation process? Yes, our brain does have a huge amount of plasticity, and it has to because our brain is always adapting to new information, new environments. And so the brain is designed to be plastic in that sense. So we do know that uh, depending on the individual A certain individual, for example, could do really well after a brain injury if they have the appropriate environment and maybe the genetic predisposition as well. Uh, We do know that uh, there are a lot of people who actually can uh, go back to the way they were to, to a large degree. There are others where that doesn't happen. So we can't really predict at an individual level why is it that some people are able to have such resilience and other people are not. But we do know that we want to maximize their chances for resilience. And to do that, uh, there are a number of things to do. Uh, Number one is, of course, to get very good care initially. And I think that's happening more and more so. So the better condition your brain is after the initial injury, the greater chance that you have later on that you'll have a good recovery. So that's that's clear. Number two is that uh, cognitive rehabilitation techniques have developed uh, to a great degree. So now there are computerized cognitive brain training programs, for example, that can can help, we think. Uh, It does take an uh, intensity to it. So it's not just doing these kinds of programs just from time to time. It's really a daily thing over weeks and months. Uh, But that can help, at least for some studies, that can actually help in terms of brain recovery cognitively. 
And uh, number three is to have an overall enriched environment, to have good social networks, good family support, good friends, and good interests, and to really use the brain as much as possible, to, to practice the brain as much as possible. So all of these things are using the brain's plasticity mechanisms to its benefit. You know, you do mention lifestyle changes, which you just touched on. But, but could you just give us an idea, and I know it's a huge topic, how medication and even psychotherapy may play a role in this problem? Sure. Uh, we do have many medications, actually, that are available to treat symptoms of traumatic brain injury. Uh, the issue is that we don't have a medication for the brain injury itself at this point. Of course, this is an area of active research. But what we do have, like I said, are medications for the particular symptoms, such as, for example, if we're dealing with depression. Uh, depression is actually, like I mentioned earlier, is a really huge problem in traumatic brain injury. And in people who don't have good treatment for depression or who are not treated for depression, their recovery may be impacted. In other words, their resilience may be impacted. So it's really important to treat that. So we have antidepressants, of course, that we use for depression. Some people can develop psychotic symptoms or manic symptoms. Of course, we have mood stabilizers and antipsychotics for that. Uh, some people have uh, behavioral problems, impulse control issues, disinhibition issues. There are medications for that, uh, which are cu quite unique, uh, such as amantadine and other such medications. Um, and then for the cognitive problems, we use medications as well for attention, such as stimulants, or for memory, such as acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. So, so there is a wide variety of medications that, uh, that we have available. Of course, they're borrowed from other fields, you know, basically treating symptoms that we see in other contexts, but, um, but using it in the context of traumatic brain injury. The medication dosing and the way we titrate the medications may be quite different. We're much more cautious and uh, sort of lower doses and slower uh, changes in the medications than we would in other contexts. But, uh, but there are, so there are differences in how we treat, but the medications are, are used in other uh, fields and other situations. In terms of therapy, cognitive uh, behavioral therapy can be helpful with uh, traumatic brain injury, especially mild traumatic brain injury. So CBT, or cognitive behavioral therapy, has been used for depression and anxiety, um, but also for other, other things. And it's, it's, there are a lot of tools from CBT that can help the person with traumatic brain injury recover in the sense of kind of putting the brain injury in context and helping people get good habits after brain injury. Uh, oftentimes after brain injury, it's, it's such a dramatic you know, problem. It's such a dramatic event in someone's life that... They may uh, not be able to sleep properly. They may have trouble in terms of how they deal with their normal stressors in life. So all of those things can be helped with, with cognitive behavioral therapy. And we talked about cognitive rehabilitation, which is uh, not a psychotherapy, but it's a, it's a therapy in terms of brain training and helping with resilience. Um, and then otherwise, in terms of lifestyle, I have found in my clinic, I have found that it is helpful for patients to engage in things such as meditation. Uh, meditation, there's quite a bit of data now as far as what meditation can do in terms of attention and as well as in terms of mood and just general resilience in life. And so meditation may be very helpful. Again, this is something which may be more helpful in mild brain injury as, as compared to more severe traumatic brain injury. But nonetheless, at some point, if the patient is able and willing to do meditation, I think it's a good idea to do. 
And then physical exercise, when it's appropriate, uh, I think is a good thing as well. It helps uh, basically the brain in many ways. What's good for the heart is good for the brain. So physical exercise can help in terms of uh, brain recovery, perhaps, at least anecdotally. So often the caregiver in the practice of medicine is overlooked. And this may even be more difficult in this particular situation in which they're told by their doctor, everything is all right, which only may add to their frustration. What can we do for caregivers of people who have traumatic brain injury? Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, oftentimes that is the message that caregivers get or, or the patients themselves is that, well, we did what we could here in the hospital. You're, you're essentially done. Follow up as needed. Um, or it may not even be that, but that's the message that a lot of patients uh, have told me that they, they get. So caregivers in particular have a very difficult job, actually, in this situation, again, depending on the severity. So the, the more severe the brain injury is, the more caregiving that they may actually have to do. And it can be very frustrating to them that their loved one is not uh, recovering the way that they think that they should. Or, alternatively, they may see their loved one looking okay. They may see, you know, they're walking around, they're talking okay, but yet their behavior is off, uh, the mood is off, their thinking and memory and attention are off, and they may not fully appreciate that this is because of damage to the brain, the brain circuitry. And, and this is what makes this very, very difficult. Uh, and I think that's really one of the purposes of this book is to help educate caregivers and, and physicians and others so that everyone understands that if you damage certain circuits in the brain, you're going to get these mood, behavioral, and cognitive symptoms. It's inevitable, actually. Uh, and this is one of the big dogmas of neuropsychiatry, and it's not necessarily well-known outside of neuropsychiatry. But just like we have motor circuits for controlling our movements and we have sensory circuits for sensation, we also have circuits in the brain that control our mood. There are circuits in the brain for our behavior management and control. There are circuits in the brain for cognition. And so if you damage those circuits, inevitably, you're going to have consequences, these neuropsychiatric consequences. But caregivers may not be aware of that. Uh, the patient may not have insight into it. And the, the patient and the caregiver may not be told by their physicians and and the clinicians that there are these long-term consequences potentially. So that's really one of the main points of this book is to convey that. We hope our listeners will tell their patients and their families that psychiatric symptoms are real and directly related to the brain injury. There should be no shame or suffering in silence. And so, Doctor, I want to thank you very much for bringing this topic to our audience. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host. Please visit ReachMD to download this podcast and many others in this series. Thank you very much.